I will try to tell you, well, not exactly what will happen next, but how things happen next. Coming to you from the many worlds of the multiverse. It's the podcast that's never the same twice, and always two things at once. This is Burning Man Live. Welcome to and from the many worlds of the Burning Man multiverse. I'm Stuart Mangrum. When we chose the multiverse as the theme for this year's Burning Man event, at the time, it just seemed like a bit of fun. A little science-y, a little silly, not at all serious. And now, wow, it seems weirdly prescient. Because, as I'm sure you know, we are currently living in a branch of Burning Man reality without a Black Rock City. A Burning Man without a burning man at its dusty center. But even though Black Rock City is not happening this year, that doesn't mean Burning Man isn't happening. Because this thing of ours has never been about a particular place. It exists anywhere and everywhere that burners are. A living culture, a state of mind, and a way of being in the world. And just as Burning Man is not about a single place, it's never been a single story. It's a million stories. The poet Muriel Rukeyser once wrote, The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. The mission of the Philosophical Center and of this series is to bring those stories to light. At this strange moment in time, with so many of us social distancing in the face of the pandemic, we need those stories more than ever to help keep us connected. Because if social distancing is the answer to the pandemic, Burning Man just might be the answer to social distancing. The idea of this show is to step across the branching arms of the many worlds and talk to the people who are making Burning Man happen. The dreamers and doers, the makers and shakers, the artists and activists and storytellers who are working every day to make the world a more creative, generous, cooperative place. A more Burning Man kind of place, wherever they are and whatever that means to them. And we want you to be part of this too. We encourage you to send your comments, feedback, and story suggestions to us at live at burningman.org. And because every self-respecting podcast these days has a sponsor, check this out. I love subscription boxes. It's how I get my meat, my produce, my shaving razors, even some of the books I read every month. But my favorite subscription box, hands down, is Radical Self-Reliance. Every week, a new box arrives, and I get to try a whole new way to be self-reliant. One time, I built a set of shelves instead of ordering them off the internet. Another time, I cleaned the area around my apartment instead of waiting for the landlord to do it. And in my favorite box so far, hands down, I canceled my subscription to the Radical Self-Reliance box because it helped me realize I don't need a box to be self-reliant. The Radical Self-Reliance box is the best subscription box I ever used to have. I honestly think it changed my life. It even improved my relationship, because the more I was able to look after my own emotional needs, the more I could be present for my partners. I bet Radical Self-Reliance could change your life too. So subscribe to the Radical Self-Reliance subscription box, and then cancel your subscription today. Okay, now let's get on with the show. Our producer and co-host today is the fabulous Andy Grace, my colleague in the Philosophical Center. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? Hi. Are you Greetings, staying safe? Greetings, <laughs> No. Staying safe, no, washing living, your hands? 
super dangerously. Really? Living on the edge. No, I'm at uh, home. I wouldn't have it any <laughs> other way. So tell us a little bit about the show that you've put together for us today for our first episode of the podcast. Well, thank you. Yeah, we thought that one of the best ways to lead into our Burning Man Live podcast would be to talk about what else Burning Man is in the world besides an event in the desert. And Burners Without Borders is one of the best ways that I have ever seen that manifest. And it's near and dear to my heart for several reasons that we'll probably get into later. But we thought we'd bring in some guests that could tell us about the background of how Burners Without Borders got started and what is happening right now out there in the world with what people are doing. Even though we're stuck at home, it's really challenging sometimes when we feel like we don't have any control and we can't make a difference. But if we all do a little bit, it can make a big difference. And so our guests today are going to tell us about Burners Without Borders and why that matters. Our guests, Tom Price is one of the founders of Burners Without Borders. Hey, how's it going, Stuart? And Christopher Breedlove is its current leader and the director of Civic Activation for Burning Man Project. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey there. Nice to be here, Stuart. We have questions. We have questions. Let's start with a little bit of background. Tom, so there you were, Burning Man 2005, and the word came in that a, a massive hurricane was hammering the Gulf Coast. What happened next, and how did that turn into Burners Without Borders? It's important to remember that in 2005, we didn't have internet at the event. And so the only news we got is what, as people drove in and gave us news of what was happening. I mean, as word spread out through the city, People immediately organically responded. One guy went out to the gate and was standing there with a milk jug that he put a red cross in duct tape on and started collecting money. And he, within 24 hours, we had collected $42,000 in cash and delivered six tons of food supplies to Reno before refugees had even landed. But immediately what people wanted was to go and to do something. And so within a week, what became a, a caravan of people started pouring into the Gulf Coast because it turns out that going to Burning Man is like boot camp for disaster relief. You already know how to provide your own food, your own shelter to take care of yourself. And so going into a place where everything had already been destroyed and then taking care of yourself first and other people was something that was organic and easy for people to do. So how did that work with the locals and with the other disaster responders? How did you guys interact and did that go smoothly or was that weird? Well, so uh, <laughs> a couple of interesting questions there. First of all, immediately after the storm, we put up this 60 foot dome still covered in fly dust. And then a truck pulled up from Kansas City that was full of supplies and they didn't know where to go. There was nowhere to go. There was nothing. It's important to understand that after Katrina, everything had been scraped to the ground a quarter mile in all along the Mississippi shore. There were no buildings. There was nowhere to put things. So we opened up a relief center within 24 hours. It was the largest relief center in that community. And for a time, people didn't really care who you were, where you were from, or even what you were called. In fact, we only named it Burners Left Borders because all the other volunteer groups had T-shirts. We wanted T-shirts, and we didn't know what to put on it. So that was what we came up with. But word got around pretty quickly that there was this kind of unique group of people. Most disaster relief groups fall into a couple of categories. The Red Cross gives out coffee and, and blankets. 
Some of the other groups, they'll give out food. Some help with taking care of children, religious groups, provide religious services. But there, word got out that there was this group of people who could kind of do anything. And somebody came and offered some equipment to the Red Cross. And they're like, we, don't, we can't take it. But there's these weird people over at the Buddhist temple. And they came and talked to us, sized us up. And six weeks later, handed us the keys to a quarter million dollars in brand new heavy machinery and said, let us know when you're done. We were the only people in the entire disaster area from Pascagoula, Alabama to New Orleans, Louisiana, operating with heavy equipment for free and for a family whose house had been destroyed and needed to get that debris out of the way so they could get a FEMA trailer and start their life. To have someone come and say, I will take this away from you for free was a godsend. I think we did $3 million worth of free work with 300 volunteers that just showed up randomly from wherever, only united by one thing, and that was a set of values. And I think this is really important. The United States is the only country in the world that is united not by a shared ethnicity or religion or background, but by ideas. And in the same way that churches are groups of people that come together who are united by an idea, so too are burners. They share a certain set of values. And one of those values is that everyone can participate, everyone has something to contribute. So as volunteers would arrive, we weren't looking for people that were heavy equipment operators or, or knew how to rebuild things, only looking for people that had something to contribute. And that was usually just their will to be a part of making something better. And because of that, we were able to be incredibly flexible, dynamic, efficient, and adaptive to whatever came up. And unlike a lot of other volunteers, if the weather turned bad, we didn't care. That was just part of the ride that we were on. Thank you. Breedlove, I'm curious about how you got involved in all this. Tell us how you got involved with Burning Man and BWB, and also what your role looks like now as a director of civic activation. Yeah. Well, I came to Burning Man for the first time in 2006, kind of by accident, which is a much longer story. I came back to Chicago and I decided to get really involved in my local community. I was a regional contact for Chicago for many years. I was one of the people who was on the original team leads for starting Likes of Fire, a regional event out there. And there was an individual in our community at that time named Tom Laporte, who I miss dearly. He passed away a few years ago. Tom and I had become great friends, and he kind of became a mentor to me, and he really brought me into Burners Without Borders. He was really inspired by uh, what Burners Without Borders was when it started, and he saw it as really this amazing moment of the principles going out into the world in action. He knew that I had previously been super involved in environmental movements, a little bit in political movements. I was already an artist and a community organizer. And then I was kind of mixing that with this Burning Man world and social impact. That really was why I was turned on to Burners Without Borders. I've had a really amazing journey with BWB. I helped start uh, the Chicago chapter way back in the day, around the same time that someone was starting a chapter in Seattle and someone was starting a chapter in Detroit. I was early on in helping organize these local community groups that were starting to come up. Because of that work, Carmen Mock, who is the former executive director, invited me to be on the board. I was the president of the board of BWB for a few years. It was a supreme honor for me in a lot of ways to be part of the conversations of bringing Burners Without Borders into the Burning Man Project 501c3 when that was starting. And then I started working with Burning Man full time. 
I now am the director of civic activation that you mentioned, which is also a really amazing role and kind of honor as, as we're figuring out what this means. It's bringing together a few of the Burning Man programs that are out there globally, including the regional network, the global art grants and civic arts, along with BWB. What I'm excited about is really looking at, well, all these programs are kind of their own distinct areas. How do we look at how all of them are doing very similar things? They're all about activation out in the world. And so how are we building communities around these buckets of activation? How are we sharing these stories out in the world? And, you know, how are we really bringing value to the amazing burners out there in the world that are already doing this work so much of the time? And how are we allowing Burning Man to be a facilitation platform for them, as well as a connection point, so that their projects can go even further out into the world? So you're from Chicago, and you mentioned a lot of uh, cities that didn't seem to be disaster areas. What sort of work was, has BWB been doing in cities like Seattle and Detroit and, uh, and Chicago? Where's the through line from responding to a hurricane to working in, in cities that are not being devastated? Well, I think that an important part of the BWB story is that, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, Tom Price and Carmen Mock and a bunch of people came back. And I don't think the point was for them to build a disaster relief organization. The point was to build an organization where people could see a reflection of themselves in the principles and go out and enact that in the world. The second project they started to work on was in San Francisco around saving the ocean beach fire pits. That's also, I think, really important because that was a bunch of burners local looking around their own community and saying, hey, we see this as an issue. How do we come together as a bunch of creative, collaborative people and create a solution to that? That was, I think, very inspirational to all of these other cities and locations. And that's really grown. Now we have up to 41 different community groups around the world, though many of them are in, in North America. Really based on the idea that I don't believe there will ever be enough government programs or non-for-profit organizations to fix all of the things going on in the world. So we need to inspire everyday citizens to look around their own communities and say, hey, I think we can work on this problem. As Tom was saying, because burners are radically inclusive, because we're so creative, it's really amazing seeing how people are coming up with amazing and oftentimes very surprising social impact projects across a whole bunch of different subject areas and regions around the world. That was kind of the point, Stuart. It was not to do disaster relief. It wasn't about that at all. It's important to understand Burning Man, if it is anything, is a permission engine. It is a place that gives people permission to try being some other version of themselves some other skill, some other attribute. And when you go and you give people that permission to do and create, extraordinary things happen. The idea behind BWB was let's create a permission engine for people to take the way that they are and the way that they interact here outside. And it is intentionally a very loose vessel that they can pour their ideas, their creativity, their skills, their unique attributes into, and then take it somewhere else. Because before that, it, people hadn't really done it. And the, and the idea was to create something that was intentionally diffuse and ill-defined so that it could just be a, a social permission structure for people to make amazing things happen. And that's what they've been doing ever since. I, I get that. And we seem to be living in a world that is a cascade of uh, disasters. And yeah. we keep having to respond to disasters. So... I'm curious what's what's happening in the community 
now coming out of the Burners of That Borders community to help respond to this crazy pandemic. Breedlove, what's going on? One of the really unique moments about COVID-19 is that I don't think ever before has the entire world been this affected by a singular topic. It's this really amazing moment where we have a lot of energy and a lot of concentration in a certain place. As community organizers, there's the blessing of that, but the struggle of that also is that people are trying to respond right now in every single geography around so many different subjects. That's also a growth edge for us right now as community organizers and facilitators. How do we bring together so many people from so many places working on so many different things? One of the things we've been doing is hosting these weekly community roundups. We've been doing these every week, and so far we've had around 52 different projects call in and give us updates. What's been really amazing is we're seeing what these responses are like, and we're also starting to see a shift of attention week by week. In the beginning, we started to see a bunch of projects immediately focusing on PPE and medical equipment. Very early on, these burners, Ethan Garner, Peter Durand, they reached out to us and wanted to create a database around distributing PPE. We were able to start working with them to create a database, and that ended up combining with 10 other community databases, and now is a website called getusppe.org and is distributing PPE all over the country. There's been other programs like Masks Are Vital coming out of Arizona, which is being run by Burners, one in Chicago called Creatives versus COVID, in which creatives are putting together packs of mask-making materials and sending those to out-of-work creatives across the country so that they can make and sell masks at a very cheap price to fill that gap. And then we're starting to see other amazing projects like Housing for Healthcare, which is started by a bunch of burners up in Canada, in which they are matching housing opportunities with healthcare workers in need. There's another project called RVs for MDs, which is starting out of Sacramento, connecting, again, healthcare workers or people who need to socially distance from their own family and putting RVs in people's driveway spots so that they can have emergency housing. And that's an awesome project because it's looking at how do we use this Burning Man infrastructure we have. If we're not going to Black Rock City, how else might we use it? Disaster response at times like this will tend to change week over week as the needs change. Are you seeing any immediate responses and needs that are evolving? And what are those? We're starting to see other projects kind of pop up, like some partners of ours called Footprint Project, which are taking their Black Rock City solar infrastructure, and they've just brought it down to Matamoros, Mexico, to solar power a COVID clinic for a city of 500,000 people. There's also another thing called the Neighborhood Resiliency Project, which is coming out of a bunch of burners in Utah right now, creating templates for people to be able to grow food in their own gardens, looking at the fact that our global food supply might start shortening up. How do we prepare people now to be ready for what's coming over the next 12 to 18 months as we don't know how long this crisis is going to last? So can you tell us a little bit more about community resiliency? I know that's been an area of interest for you personally for a long time, where communities are training not just to be able to respond after a disaster, but to actually prepare and be stronger before the moment strikes. Community resiliency for me is kind of the ticket of what BWB is really attempting to teach out there. How do we help community leaders create more creative, connected, resilient communities around the world? how we could even tie that idea into disaster relief is that, you know, on a long enough timeline, every community in the world is going to experience a disaster someday. 
whether that disaster is natural, economic, health, or otherwise, by organizing together as community groups taking on civic and social impact projects, we're actually working out those muscles that we're going to need when those disasters strike. Absolutely agree. That's what's really fun right now about all of these projects that are popping up. And, you know, these projects are happening from, sure, BWB groups, but they're also happening amongst regional groups, amongst theme camps and meeting vehicles. We're really starting to see people have these longer-term discussions about what's possible out there in the world. If you go to the BWB website or if you Google search the long disaster, there's this really amazing paper that one of our BWB members wrote based off of a lot of conversations we've been having. We're in this unique period of time where disaster response back in the day was like, okay, Katrina's happening, let's focus on Katrina. And then you could go back to your normal life. And that's not really the paradigm anymore. Disasters seem to be piling on top of each other more and more. And so we're actually having this other conversation too around what dual crisis looks like. What's going to happen when hurricane season opens up and COVID's still happening? What's going to happen when the wildfires start in California or Australia and COVID's still happening? I really believe that our community is uniquely positioned to handle these sorts of things, not only because of what Tom said around being a boot camp for this, right? We've got the supplies, we've got the training, we've got the volunteers to go, and we're already really good at surfing the chaos. Also, I think that other thing that we bring is fun. And I can't underscore how essential that is. Being a responder or being a a leader in civic engagement is hard. And it's draining and it's emotionally challenging at times. By connecting together as community leaders, sharing what we know, allowing ourselves healthy, creative off-gases for these things, and then also really bringing as much fun and creativity to these projects as possible, that's also what makes us different than all of these other organizations that are doing this sort of work. And as I've seen, we go into a situation and we build a camp or we build a project and all of a sudden these other volunteers from these other projects come and hang out with us at night or come and hang out with us on the weekends because not only are we bringing these solutions to the world, but we're doing it in costumes and we're doing it with jokes and we're doing it by showing movies in the evenings or even back to Katrina thinking about how they built sculptures and then burning those on the weekends. It's that fire and that creativity and that art that creates communities around these really difficult subjects. In a way, that's where this Burning Man project excels out in the world. We want to enroll everyone into the regenerative future, into the social impact that's going to bring that more beautiful world that we all know is possible, but we need to make it as fun as possible. I think that's really what this resiliency means to me. Fun, creativity, radical self-expression. Tom, you got anything to add on that topic? I know you've had some fun in some areas that weren't possibly all that fun. I can't stop thinking about all the opportunities that exist right now to do things that can create extraordinary opportunities for fun and dynamism and yet still be in this moment. For example, we can't all get together because it's dangerous to get together. Why can't we organize a reverse parade in Reno where we put all the art on the sidewalks and then people get in their car and drive through the fire tunnels and so forth to experience going to Burning Man. Since we can't go to it, why don't we bring it to people? What can we do so we can take the big pieces of interesting, scary, dangerous stuff that we all have squirreled away in our storage units in all of our communities around the country 
and bring them into the streets and share it with people what it is we're doing. Let people experience the experiential art that is about being at Burning Man. You don't have to go to the place to experience the impact and, and understand the ethos. And when we do that, when we give people permission to try and see and experiment and taste, you know, it changes people. It changes them fundamentally in, in, in a really positive way. This is a terrible tragedy that we're in the middle of, but that doesn't mean that we can't find amusement and entertainment and joy. And in fact, what I learned from Katrina from being in the Gulf Coast for nine months is that the people who had not planned and not thought about taking care of themselves were really bad off. But the people who had given even a moment's thought to how to take care of themselves were not only surviving, but they were thriving in that moment. They'd taken all the artifice of their lives, all the pieces of the puzzle of their society, and they were all scattered to the wind. And then they were reassembling them in interesting ways that made sense and were, were compelling to them. That's what we do when we go to Burning Man. We reorganize society in interesting ways, look at it, and then take it apart. And giving people the opportunity to do that in a real physical way is incredibly powerful. Like Christopher mentioned, when we were making art out of the debris of Katrina and then burning it in our camp, and then the locals found out, and then they came and they saw, and we said, well, if you want, you can make a piece of art. The people went home and they found pieces of the wreckage of their lives in their front yard. They brought it back. They put it together to make pieces of art, many of them for the first time in their lives. Oh my God, it was beautiful. It. it was beautiful. They, it. they saw that they could have agency in their lives. They lit it on fire and they let it go. And in that moment, these people out in the rural swamp in Southern Mississippi were no more or less burners than any of us from San Francisco are. Is that act of having agency in your life to imagine it being something different and then taking the steps and being supported by the community you're a part of to do that. That's what's so powerful. That's what hooked me the first time I went to Burning Man. Seeing what could be and seeing that I could be something that could be something new. So how do people get involved? I imagine a lot of people have great ideas and don't feel that they have the permission to act. You must get a lot you do. You may already be a member. You guys, you BWB ought to do this thing, right? How do you turn that around and both at once tell them that they can be BWB if they want to be and figure out how to support them from the center? Well, as Tom was just saying, I feel like within BWB, we really want to hold on to that idea from the Cacophony Society. Oftentimes, I talk about BWB just like the playa. Like if our participants didn't come to the playa, Burning Man wouldn't be a whole lot besides a man and a center camp and, and some porta potties, right? BWB is the same way. We need participants to make this magic. And again, we really are here to facilitate and support you dreaming your vision of the principles out into the world. There's a bunch of ways you can get involved. If you are thinking about these COVID projects, every Wednesday, you can join these community roundups. Another thing that we're trying to dream up across this whole civic activation department right now is we have a lot of people across the entire Burning Man multiverse that are working in really interesting ways. We've got regionals who are doing community leadership and activation. We've got civic arts, which is doing art activation. We've got grant programs that are doing grant activation. We've got people doing sustainability. They're doing ecosystem activation. We want to bring all of these conversations together into bi-weekly, community-based conversation. 
We're looking to launch that sometime soon. And that's an opportunity for you as a burner out there in the world, ideally to find other people who are interested in similar types of conversations that you are and learn from burners who are really those role models out in the world and then figure out how you can support their projects that are happening. The role of Burning Man Project and BWB at the center is more to connect people and to facilitate conversations across than to directly come up with projects, right? It's to listen and to feed that back to the community? Or what's your role at the center of this web of great ideas? I would say that 70 to 80% of our energy and our time in BWB is spent facilitating and supporting our community. This community moves so much faster than we can as an organization. Honestly, sometimes it's it's like whiplash trying to keep up because there's just so many people out there and they're so talented and they're so passionate. We're just trying to create a framework so that people can find one another so that we can, as people who've done projects and assisted with projects, offer guidance, consulting, and point you to the right resources. And sometimes there is a project that comes up that feels really, really wonderful. Like we want to like throw that organizational might behind it, but that's really only 20% of the work that we do. If we really want impact to scale, if we really want these principles and this culture to scale, we need to be empowering all of you out in the world to do this work. If we think we can hold that, then, then we're fooling ourselves about the scale of impact that we can make. Sounds great. Studio audience, if you have any questions, now's a good time to poke them into Q&A. We've got a few more minutes with our guests here. Looks like we have one question from the audience. Andy? Yes. Someone was asking, how do you request assistance from BWB? Yeah, that's a great question. The easiest ways are to connect with us through our website or on social media. Those are two surefire ways to get us. We do have a project proposal forum on our website. If you're looking for certain types of support, you can reach out to us there. And then every year, we also do a whole bunch of micro grants out to the world, both for projects that are directly related to the Burning Man community and also to those that are just mission and value aligned. This isn't just about burners. This is about burner know-how, principles, and values going out there. And so that's also a way you can look for support from us. And what is that web address? What is the URL? It is burnerswithoutborders.org. You can find us on the, the big book of faces. You can find us on that other app that people post photos on all the time or the other one that the president uses to tweet meaningless sentences. All of those formats. Yes. I'm not looking there. We have some other questions. I hear there's a movie about the beginning of Burners Without Borders. Where can I find it? I should know the answer to that. Tom, do you want to say anything about that film? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next uh, question. <laughs> it's on YouTube and we will be making it available in other ways very shortly. The name of that film is Burn on the Bayou, if, if yes. you want to look it up. And you can actually find it on Vimeo. Yeah, it's, it's out there. How can you connect with other like-minded entities? One of the awesome parts about Burners Without Borders, in my experience, is that we get to play with what affiliating and partnering with like-minded organizations are out there in the world. We're always very open to collaborating. We have a whole list of affiliate partners. There's this really amazing network called 
Nation of Makers, which is a conglomeration of makerspaces all across uh, North America and came out of the White House Maker Initiative. We work with them a lot. And man, there's so many. I'll just list three of these because I think they're so awesome. There's a group called Global Coalition, which are artists that are building large-scale sculptures right now near the ocean, sinking them in the ocean, and then doing coral regrowth science on them as an artistic science civic engagement project to help regrow and regenerate the oceans. Like I said earlier, Footprint Project is bringing solar energy systems that have been built for Black Rock City to disaster zones and and COVID clinics across the country. The Permaculture Action Network is doing days of music, art, permaculture, and land regeneration before and after concerts and events all across the nation. And then there's also these other projects that have been born out of other Burning Man events. Like there's the Africa Burn Outreach Project, which is like a sister project to BWB in which they're figuring out how to support their local communities in South Africa using their Africa Burn community and know-how. If you have an organization that you want to partner with us, again, reach out to us on the website, or you can always email us at bwb at burningman.org. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to plug you in. And very soon, we'll be launching our new website for Burners Without Borders, and we'll actually have a spot on there for partner projects where you can list your projects alongside ours so that Burners and others can find you. Fantastic. Can't wait to see that. Wow. I just got to thank both of you guys for showing up today and helping us kick off this podcast. It's been really great to have you on the show. Thank you, Breedlove. Indeed. This is exactly what I was hoping for. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for having us here and and thanks for partnering with Tom because I'm continually inspired by how you think about our culture, Tom. And I'm so thankful for the work you've done with BWB and BlackRock Solar and all of it. I appreciate that too. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Go do good things. All right. And wash your hands. Now to take us home, to bring it all home. We're going to close out with some burning thoughts from our fire safety manager and resident philosopher, Mr. Dave X. Dave, take it away. Hey, everybody. I was hearing talk about the uh, boot camp of adversity that is Burning Man and, and that helped create the folks to do these kind of great tasks. And I think one of the key trainings at that boot camp of adversity known at Burning Man is the use of a really powerful phrase. It's a phrase that can bring together and make real some of the most improbable and unlikely things. It's a phrase that in its mere utterance can bring together groups of strangers and create community that grow with each day. And you know what that phrase is? The phrase is for Burning Man. If you go into a random bar in, in, you know, wherever you are and you tell the folks at the bar, you want to make a giant whale and it's going to drive around with everybody from the bar can get on it and, and there'll be a dance floor and a DJ, and uh, of course the whale will shoot fire from its spout. You just get a lot of pan-faced looks. But if you attach the phrase for Burning Man, somehow it becomes a real thing because people have a frame of reference for impossible things happening at Burning Man. You know, suddenly the person sitting next to you on the bar stool says, well, I'm a, I'm a licensed welder. I'd be glad to help you put that together. And Somebody else hears you talking and they tell you that they've got a bus that they want to give you. And then it turns out that that new friend that you just made is a fundraiser. And all of a sudden you're raising funds. 
The phrase for Burning Man gives people permission to believe the impossible things because they've seen so many impossible things made real at Burning Man. Even I've heard crazy things and I thought that'll never work. And like all of these projects pushed me to my limits of what I thought I could do personally on a physical level. And then every time I come through that, it would broaden me as a human being as to what I thought would be possible. And as a matter of fact, I stopped accepting the word impossible and just replaced it with a list of challenges that you're going to need to address to make that real. As time went by, I realized that this phrase was starting to creep out into the real world. Like I remember one night I was sitting with the Flaming Lotus Girls, the first founding members of the Flaming Lotus Girls. We were up in the craft loft at the cell space, great art space here in the mission that, that's long gone. They had done their first two projects, which were kind of small. And I remember Tamara Lee laughingly saying, you know, one day maybe we'll travel the world and we'll do our fire art all around the world and people will pay us to bring it. <laughs> we all laughed and joked. Well, now the Flaming Lotus Girls got over 300 members, 16 pieces of amazing art. They've been all over the world with their art, including everywhere in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Holland, like dream come true. Like, how did this happen? One story always really sticks with me of really sticking to your guns to the end and working on things that are impossible. I remember me and Stephen Raspa were tasked with going to pull the first fire permit for decompression on Indiana Street. The San Francisco Fire Department, they, they still remember the earthquake and fire and, and many fires before that. And their job when you say that you want to make fire in their city is to really look at you with a skeptical eye. When we came in and said we were from Burning Man and we wanted to do fire in the city, they were still thinking about things like survival research labs and, and these other groups who were kind of renegades and went under the wire and the fire department only stumbled on them after the fact. So they immediately said, no, that's not gonna happen. We appreciate you guys coming in and talking about it, but that's gonna be a big no. And me and Steven left and we, we would not accept that. And uh, we talked to some folks and luckily we had a few connections. The fire chief at that time, she agreed to help us out. She went back into the inspectors who worked there and she said, look, you got to at least give these guys a chance. Maybe it won't work out or whatever, but let's at least give them a chance. I trust them. And, and I remember the fire inspector, again, brought us back in begrudgingly, had a meeting with us. He said, okay, we'll give it a try. Well, six years after that, I remember I had such a good relationship with the fire department. They were really our partners and friends in this. And I remember we had brought all this fire art out. And one of the fire art pieces we brought was this giant jet engine on a trailer that somebody had bought off of eBay. It was a French fighter jet engine mounted on a trailer. And it had a 90-degree pipe that came off the back. And when you fired up this jet, it made all kinds of noise like you would think a jet engine would make. And then he could dump gasoline into the exhaust and a tremendous flame shot out of the top of the jet engine. And, you know, when we had this all area of fire art set up, I put this thing under the bridge that was going over 18th Street because I didn't think anybody was going to let it. I didn't even think it was probably the right thing to be running that on the street. And so we get there and the fire inspector, my great friend, Manny Pecoros, he's passed from us now, but he's a great man. He starts looking at all the fire art and our relationship was really good. And he gave me comments about this and that. And we get to the gen engine and he goes, Dave, what's this thing? And I explained to him what it was. And I and he goes, well, we're going to fire that up. And I go, well, you know, Manny, it's underneath this overpass here. You know, I, I don't think it's appropriate for the city. 
And he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, Dave, are you afraid? And I'm like, wait, I'm not afraid of anything, Manny. And he goes, well, then let's fire it up. And I said, well, okay, Manny. And this is only because he grew to trust me. He, he knew that I wouldn't have fired it up if there was an actual risk, which there kind of was, but I was still willing to go with it. And we fired up the jet and literally like flames were curling around the edge of the freeway overpass there as cars are driving by, probably thinking there's a tremendous fire under this bridge going. And that jet was roaring and Manny had the biggest smile on his face that you could ever imagine on a fire marshal. And then after maybe what seemed like a couple minutes of runtime, it may have just been a few seconds, he gave me another squeeze on the shoulder and he said, okay, shut her down. And there's still a giant cinch spot underneath that freeway that I call the Manny Pecoros Memorial Burn Spot. I was wondering what that was. I've seen it. Yeah, it's a big ring-shaped fire ring. Yeah. He grew so comfortable with it. And it seemed impossible when we first went in there that we would ever get to the point where the fire marshal would be daring me to run the jet engine under the overpass in the city. But that's what happens when you take on the impossible. And made me realize when we started doing this stuff in the city that the phrase for Burning Man wasn't actually necessary in this. It was just a mind change, a, a change in my attitude where I just wouldn't accept impossible. Yep. Yes. And I'm hearing about Burners Without Borders doing all the work that they do and, and just showing up there without any invitation to do the cleanup after Katrina and just starting in on it with the intention of, yeah, we're going to do impossible things here is really the key. It's just changing your mindset. Right now in COVID, there's so many seemingly impossible challenges to this. And even with us having to move our event off of Playa this year to the multiverse, there's so many challenges, which just seems like accepting impossible is just not possible. I am going to do everything I can to make the impossible real. Just like every other day at the office, we do the impossible, literally. I think about Burners Without Borders, you know, when when the guy with pink dreadlocks shows up and says, I want to make 10,000 face covers in my makerspace, they probably get some skeptical looks from the healthcare folks and wherever they're at. But then when they show up with the big truck full of those face shields, wow, that dude pulled off the impossible. So this is really the chance for us to uh, push ourselves to do impossible stuff. Everybody at home probably has a list of impossible things that they've always wanted to do. Well, now you, A, got plenty of time to do it, and B, we've given you permission because you're a trained burner out of the Burning Man boot camp of adversity who knows how to use the phrase for Burning Man. It's like in that movie Dune where at first they needed the power word to make things happen, but then he realized he didn't need the power word because he was the Kwasak Sadrach or whatever. It's all in your mind, and fear is the mind killer, right? That's right. right. And fear is the mind killer. And I know almost every burner that I know will not accept impossible. So I'm encouraging you to never accept impossible. Thank you for that reminder, Dave. And thank you for your thoughts. I think that is a show, folks. Yeah, pretty sure that's it. Yeah. Well, you want to take us out? Thanks, everybody, for showing up. Put my announcer voice back on. Burning Man Live is a production of the Philosophical Center of Burning Man Project. Our executive producer is Daryl Van Ray. Our producers are Andy Grace and Dickie Davies. Our technical producer and chief of human-cyborg relations is Michael Vavracek. Our liaison to the digital spirit world is Devin from the internet. Our fire safety officer is Dave X. Our advertising manager is Caveat Magister. 
Our music director is Jay Knizzle, and our correspondents are you. Send us your show ideas, letters, suggestions, and comments to live at burningman.org. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @burningmanlive and look for upcoming live recordings and podcast downloads at live.burningman.org. Thanks, Larry.